you do have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, we, three, we will continue our study here in the book of Genesis. Unpacking uh, Genesis three fourteen and 15 this morning. Well, actions deserve consequences. And last week we looked at how Adam and Eve broke the commands of God. Uh, our kids memorize several questions uh, that we'll have during our family worship time. Often we'll have, uh, we'll, we'll read a Bible story, uh, sing together, but often we'll have uh, questions as well uh, to get them to know um, and memorize kind of biblical information. And one of the questions we ask is, in what condition did God make Adam and Eve? In what condition did God make Adam and Eve? And our kids uh, respond, uh, God made Adam and Eve holy and happy. Holy and happy. And so in the beginning, in the garden, we see Adam and Eve, and they are holy. They are they're, they're unstained from sin, and they are happy. And then there's a few questions talking about their sin. Uh, and then it said, what, what happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned? And our, and our kids, they answered this a little bit too happily. But they said, instead of being holy and happy, they became sinful and miserable. their condition went from holy and happy to sinful and miserable. That's depressing. It's difficult. And that, that's what we, we, we see as, as we, we look at Genesis 3. We, look at, we go from, from heavenly bliss into sin and misery. And we see the difficulty and the consequences and the devastation that comes from sin. In this section specifically, we start to see the consequences of sin. It's something that will continue to unfold in the verses following our section this morning. But the consequences of sin are not limited to this surrounding context. They're felt in every generation. The color of sin is a dominant color on the canvas of history. And this morning, as we look at this idea of a sinful creation... And we look at this idea of sinful creation being a note throughout the sermon. It's like the, the, the workers on the roof this past week. Pounding and pounding and just this, it almost becomes this background noise. of the, Maybe this is just the way things always were and always will be. Of, of, of pounding and clamoring and uh, things falling from the, from the ceiling. <laughs> like, uh, maybe this is just part of life. And for many of us, perhaps that's how we feel. Looking around at the effects and the devastation that sin wrecks in this world. And maybe we can start to feel, maybe this is just the way things always were and always will be. But the beauty in the message this morning is not only do we see the consequences of sin, we see the glimmer and the beauty of hope in the midst of it. And so, we're going to get there. Hold on. We're going to get there at the end. But before, we're going to talk about some depressing stuff. But we will end with hope this morning. Well, let's read through our passage, and then we'll unpack it uh, together. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, 
Cursed are you. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Short passage this morning, but a lot to unpack. Let's look firstly at this idea that sinful creation needs to know its place. Sinful creation needs to know its place. The first thing that we notice here is that the consequences uh, of sin, only two places in Scripture do we see God personally curse. God personally curse. We see it uh, here, and we see it in Genesis 4.11. This phrase of cursed are you. Other, other times in Scripture, is kind of a third-person descriptor, or cursed shall you be, like in Deuteronomy 28, 16. But here, and then in the example of Cain, we see God himself dealing out the curse. And curse is the opposite of blessing that we've already seen in our study of Genesis. The blessing of God was a life of flourishing and creativity, It emphasizes fullness and abundance. But the curse of God is a form of judgment. One commentator explains it this way. This is an expression of God's judgment, indication of coming misfortune. The blessings are reversed. The joyous dance of creation has become a dirge as a shadow falls over all things. To be under God's curse is to bear his judgment. And we see what this curse looks like for the snake. The the curse is is directed at the snake and the consequences are for it to crawl on its belly and to eat dust. So there are a couple questions that this might come to our mind, especially if we have looked at this passage before and studied it. Uh, Does this mean that the serpent originally had legs? Or that it kind of moved upright to begin with? Well, early commentators, uh, even uh, Jewish commentators and early Christian commentators uh, made the, the point and they would argue that uh, the serpent originally had legs and that this was part of God's curse was now that it's on its belly and doesn't have legs. Others would say that it was crawling upright, but now it's on its belly. Uh, many modern commentators kind of shy away from this idea um, and instead kind of see it as a divine interpretation of the snake's condition. In other words, this is what the snake has always done, but now God is declaring this is what this represents. The crawling in the belly represents your curse, represents your lowly status. So, what is it? I don't know. And I don't think the biblical testimony gives us a whole lot to go by. It simply tells us this is, this is what the curse is. And the point is clear. The point is this is happening for your humiliation, snake. You try to rise up, guess what? You're gonna, I'm going to show you what you really are. You're going to be on the ground, crawling, slithering, eating dust. And elsewhere in Scripture, when we see this idea of, of eating dust, is always... Related to humiliation. 
So what's abundantly clear in the passage, we can speculate all we want about what, what the snake is, and that could be fun, but what's clear in the biblical testimony is this is an act of, of God humiliating the snake who tried to usurp its God-given role. That man is supposed to rule over snake, but here we see snake kind of usurping and standing above man. And God's saying, no, actually, this is your place. It's the lowliest of lowly. It's beneath everything. It's the snake's curse relates to its humiliation. Humiliation. And this idea of eating dust as a form of humiliation happens, again, elsewhere in Scripture. Psalm 72, 9, Micah 7, 17, Isaiah 49, 23. What we're seeing is instead of man ruling over creatures, we see a creature directing man towards sin. Man is not tending and caring for creatures as God's vice regent. Instead, he is being overrun by creation itself. And so God is punishing as a form of humiliation. But here, here's, here's something that we need to understand in the midst of this as well for us. For us. We also need to know our place. The point of the curse is clear. Sinful creation needs to know its place. Beast is not to rule over man. And in the same way, man does not know better than God. How often do we too rear our head as if to strike? Either other image bearers of God or God himself claiming to be wiser and knowing better than our creator. This is the story of Romans 1. Romans 1 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. What if our sinful rejection of God is us rearing up our head snake-like and not understanding our proper place? And in doing so, robbing ourselves of actual humanity. My son, this past week, um, did something, I, I don't even remember what, but he got in trouble. Um, and uh, I think uh, it's Noah, uh, he's six years old, I think he's fighting with his older brother or his sister or something. And so they're going back and forth and fighting, fighting together. And, and, and I, he got in trouble. And, and so he, 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 uh, uh, Got con- he had consequences for his decision, um, and in the midst of that, he was like, like it, we were driving to school, and he's just bawling in the back seat. And I'm like, what's going on, buddy? He's like, I don't even feel like a real person. <laughs> like, why? He's like, I feel like a robot or something. Like, I, I know I need to do good, but I didn't do good. And so I got to comfort him with the fact, well. There's great hope in that because Jesus didn't come from, for good people. He came for those who have sinned. But there's something real about that too. That by us being disobedient, by us running after our own things, we're actually robbing ourselves of our true humanity. 
we're not living how we were created to live. And so just as this snake not understanding its place, often we don't understand our place of flourishing and goodness. Well, there's more to it than just a snake. We know that the snake is uh, Satan himself, right? And we see that later on in Scripture. And so there's fuller elements to this curse as well. Second, sinful creation will be at odds with God. So the text moves to the relationship between the snake and the woman. And there's a theme here that's developed that plays out throughout the pages of Scripture. And some of your translations will say offspring and others will say seed right, in verse 15. And this text seems to be indicating that there will be descendants of each that will be at odds with one another. But what are these offspring or seed? Theologians have pressed into this idea and see it as a godly line and a line that belongs to the serpent. And we know from the New Testament that the serpent refers to Satan. So here we have those who belong to Satan and those who belong to the godly line coming from Eve. And the question might be, well, isn't everyone from Eve? Is this a cosmic battle between snakes and people? No, it's actually a battle between those who align with the snake and those who align with the seed of the woman. And the things that go with each. It's the line that divides. Today, we have many artificial lines that are drawn. We can separate ourselves into tribes over minor things. It's not wrong to have firm convictions about a lot of different things, but it's problematic when we make those things ultimate. The only firm and true dividing line is those who belong to the serpent and those who align with the seed of the woman. This is something that we see uh, throughout the pages of Scripture. Uh, Throughout Scripture, there's a battle uh, with the line of the serpent. Immediately we see that play, don't we? We see it with Cain and Abel. The same words that are used to curse the serpent are used in the curse of Cain. He is continuing in the line of the serpent. Just as the serpent uh, usurped its role, just as it didn't know its place, just as it sought to uh, disobey the Lord, now we have Cain rising up to murder his brother. And later we see all who oppose Abraham as under the curse. Scripture uses this word enmity. It'll be hate, conflict, resistance between these two, between the people of God and between those who don't belong to God. We see it with a towering giant who's adorned with armor like a snake and comes against the people of God. We see it when the Pharisees come out to John the Baptist and he says to them, You brood of vipers. In other words, you are the line of the serpent coming against God and his intentions. We see it with those who claim to be Abraham's descendants, and Jesus tells them, you're actually of your father the devil, the father of lies. 1 John 3 says that we know that we are, that we know who the children of God are and who the children of devil are. 
And he links the children of the devil with Cain, highlighting the cursing of the serpent. And then Cain in Genesis 3. Over and over again, we see the enemies of God raising their heads to attack, and we see conflict with the people of God. This plays out throughout the pages of Scripture. So here in Genesis 3, we see a trajectory for there to be conflict between the people of God and people who are living outside of God, aligning themselves with the serpent in his ways, and that there's this ongoing battle. But it doesn't stay contained simply to the pages of Scripture. Uh, We see it in the world today. In the world today, there are those who reflect the line of the serpent. We see those who are overcome with bitterness and resentment. We see senseless killing and death. We see those who are controlled by lust and use, use others for their own gain. We see people worshiping themselves instead of humbly submitting to their creator. In our ever-connected world, we can be bombarded by a thousand stories a day. We can come across images and video clips of horrendous evil without even trying. While technology can be a great gift, having a barrage of the works of the serpent is not helpful to anyone. As the children's hymn goes, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. What are you putting in front of your eyes and ears on a regular basis? Is it shaping your heart? Our loves are being reshaped each day. Are yours being reshaped according to the line of the serpent? One indicator of how our hearts are being shaped might be what we find funny, what we laugh at, things we find enjoyable. Remember this from a number of years ago. Al Mohler has a a podcast called The Briefing, and he said this uh, during one of the episodes. An ironic relationship with truth and goodness and often very relativistic, if not nihilistic, denial of truth and goodness and beauty is what now drives much of our comedy. What's important for all of us to recognize is that that tells us not only about comedians, it also tells us about ourselves. The way we laugh, why we laugh, when we laugh, is one of the most revealing truths about us. What do we laugh at? What do we find funny? What does it say about our own heart? What does it say about our loves? You see, the truth is, not only can we see this in the pages of Scripture, this idea of the line of the serpent and the ways of the serpent being played out throughout the pages of Scripture, we can see it in the world around us. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can see it in our own hearts, can't we? Our own hearts, as Jeremiah 17, 9 says, are deceitfully wicked above all things who can know them. Romans 3 tells us that there's none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. It's easy to draw lines between us and others as if we are good and they are satanic, but even as we do that, it can reveal our own sinful pride. It's not just them out there that need hope. It's you that that needs hope. 
It's not just them out there that need saving, it's you that needs saving. We have to be careful of looking at this us versus them. There's certainly this throughout the pages of Scripture, and perhaps you've experienced that as well. The hatred of the world, things out there that, that's difficult for you in a day-to-day basis. But if we're not careful, we can only see that lens and not understand that that exists in our own heart as well. We are prone to do our own thing. We are prone to go our own way. We are prone to rise up against our creator and claim that we are wiser than he is. Claim that we would know better. Each of us has sinned. Each of us has gone his own way. Well, the title of the sermon is The First Gospel. We've been talking a lot about sinful creation. And Pastor Nick, just give us some hope. Talked about how sinful the world is. Talked about this ongoing cosmic battle forever. Talked about the fact that I'm a sinner. Like, give me something nice and pleasant. Well, there is something beautiful in the pages of this account. And that's that sinful creation has hope. Can't you see it, like, even at the beginning? Like, those who were, like, they ate the fruit, and what's supposed to happen? They die, and yet, immediately, the, the curse has come. But what does the curse say? Your offspring will, wait, wait a minute. My offspring? I'm not going to die right now? And produce offspring? Wait, wait a minute. That gives hope not only for me, but that gives hope for my husband? takes two to tango. Like there, there, there needs to be, uh, he, he's involved in this process. What, wait, what's going on here? Can't you see it? Like in the, it, it probably shocked like them as they're hearing this. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. My offspring? And so immediately in the midst of curses, which was jerking in the other direction after we see a bunch of blessing. But now there's a, there's a pause, there's a hesitation, there's a, there's a, there's a little glimpse here of there's, there's hope in the midst of this. Like, what's going on here? What is this trying to get at? What's underneath all of this? This glimmer of hope. You see, I think it's important as we think of this passage here this morning, we see curses, curses, and now we see hope. For understand that this is the biblical pattern, isn't it? For bad news to come, and then comes the good news. This is the exact opposite of the world, right? The world says, here's the good news. You're enough. You, you can do it yourself. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Just believe in yourself enough, and you can achieve anything. And then what happens is devastation. Actually, I can't do it all myself. But it's saying I can, and if I don't, then something's wrong with me. But the biblical testimony starts with bad news, doesn't it? You've sinned. You've fallen short. 
for there's hope. And that hope does not disappoint. And that's what we're turning to. I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying not get, to get too ahead. I'm trying not to get too ahead. Uh, well, what we see is, is and this is, this is amazing, Jesus himself is the seed of the woman. This seed is, is, is referred to with a singular pronoun. It's talking about an individual who's to come from Eve. Someone who is to come from Eve. Like, what is the hope? One's to, one who's to come from Eve. What, what, what is this hope? What is this descendant? What is this offspring that's coming? And, and what is, what's going to happen between this offspring and Satan? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, that offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Some of your translations might say, he shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here in Genesis 3, we have a picture of the first gospel, don't we? The first gospel, the good news. Right, we see it in, in Isaiah, don't we? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Like, what happened on the cross? Jesus crushed the head of the serpent even as he was being crushed. You see a, a, a bruised heel, that's, that's a wound that hurts a crushed head that's fatal. And Jesus was crushed for us. But he didn't stay crushed, did he? He rose again in victory. He rose again in victory, dealing Satan the death blow. This is how the early church understood this passage. Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, much of the early church understood that this seed right here in Genesis 3 is pointing ahead to Jesus who's to come. And that redefines and that helps us understand all of Scripture. Like, why does not God not just wipe everything out and start over with the flood? Because he's preserving the line of the woman. Because it's one of her descendants that would come and crush the head of the snake. He's keeping his promise. Why does that give us hope as opposed to even angelic beings? I love what Anselm said in the medieval church. He said, why can we be saved by angels? Can't He said, because they were just created. We all come from one descendant. Jesus couldn't have just become an angel like he could become a person. But he can actually become a person because he's in the line of Eve. Going all the way back. And because of that, he can usher in a new humanity in himself. He became like us so that he could be crushed and bring forgiveness. 
See, that's the, the beautiful thing is that Jesus was experienced the curse so that we might experience the blessing. Because of our sin, we're not only aligned with Satan, we're under the curse of God. But Scripture says that Jesus became a curse for us. He took our place under the curse of God so that we might experience the blessing of his victory. The dirge becomes a joyous dance once again because the bridegroom has won the victory for his bride. And not only that, but as Christians, we live in union with Christ because we join him in victory over Satan. Romans 16.20 says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan. He will crush him underneath your feet. There's a sense where Satan was dealt a death blow when Jesus died and rose again. And there's also a sense where even now he is being crushed as Christians live in obedience to God in his victory. Who is the snake crusher? Jesus. But as we're united to Jesus, we also become snake crushers in virtue of him and his, his victory. What does that mean? What does that mean for the way you live? Anybody ever use this? And Maybe you have. Maybe, maybe you fall into this. Maybe this happened this morning. I'm not trying to call you out. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm not spying on you. But anybody say... I'm sorry I did that, honey, but Satan made me do it. It, it was Satan. He, he kind of got into my head. He, he kind of made me do it. I, I didn't want to do it, but he made me do it. Like, how foolish is that when we have a name tag written across our chest, if you're a Christian, that says snake crusher? Snake crusher. Uh, Satan made me do it. No, we have victory. We're united to the one who crushed Satan, and in him, we too can say no. Like, be careful of falling into that trap. When we have victory in Christ. Don't use Satan as an excuse for your sin if you're united to Christ. So we have the initial death blow. We see Christians united to the victory, and, there's, and we also see that there's a final victory. The snake will be thrown into a lake of fire. The final destination for the snake is hell. But that's not the final destination for us. That's not the final destination for us. And here's, here's the beauty of it, that Jesus leads us home. There's a children's book that we read to our kids, and the subtitle says, How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. This is the beauty of what's being spoken about here. One day, the Snake Crusher will make everything right. One day, all sad things will come untrue. We'll be led back to where we belong. Back to an earth that's not stained with sin and one where humanity dwells in perfect harmony with God. This is what we have to look forward to. It's what's being hinted at right here in the book of Genesis. It is this one who has come and he will make everything right. It's why it's such a big deal that God didn't just start over with a flood but preserved this line. 
Jesus is leading us home. He created himself a new humanity that starts now. All who are united to Christ through faith will be raised to new life with him one day. Jesus' work of leading us home starts now and it lasts forever. And the truth is, and the question is, we have to ask this of ourselves, is this true of us? Have you trusted in the snake crusher? Each of us left on our own, we are in the line of the serpent, doing war with God and his people and the things of God. Like Jesus said to those who confronted him, we are of our father, the devil. We are living lives that are marked by sin and misery. But the question I asked to my kids, in what condition did God make Adam and Eve? Holy and happy. That's the destination for all Christians. Not sin and misery, but holiness and happiness. Because we are led back to the garden where our Savior is, where there's no more tears, there's no more pain, there's only perfection. The heavenly garden awaits all who are in Christ. Is that you? If that's not you, and somebody brought you here this morning, talk to them. (laughs) We'd love for you to know Jesus. Don't hesitate. Don't delay. If you know him, rejoice in that. Walk in the victory that's yours through his accomplished work, through what he has done for you. The snake crusher has done it all. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for the beauty of this passage. The first gospel that Jesus is to come and he's to crush the head of Satan. And Father, thank you that on the cross he dealt Satan a death blow. Help us to walk in his victory this week. And Father, we long for the day when Jesus returns and sets all things right. We long for the day when there's a new heavens and a new earth where we can enjoy our Savior forever. Until that day, help us to be faithful. Help us to live for him. This in Jesus' name we pray.